Well, I'll invite you to grab a Bible. Um, if you brought one, we're taking a, a little two-week break from our series through the Gospel of John, and uh, we're talking about our vision and our mission as a church. So Luke 9 will eventually land in Luke chapter 9 and, and, and spend some time there. But um, if you're new to North Peace Church, you picked a great week to come because usually every September at the start of kind of the ministry year and the school year and it's just natural rhythm where, you know, we're back from holidays and we're starting up things again. Um, I, I find it so helpful to usually every September remind ourselves, why do we exist as a church? Um, what are we here for? What, what, do we, what, what are we on about as a church? What is our, our mission? What do we want to do, right? What is God calling us to do in our city as a church? And one of the reasons that we do this year after year is that it's, it's really easy to become unfocused as a church. What happens often, um, even just personally, as followers of Jesus, but then corporately as a church, what can happen is we slip into either comfort or um, maintenance or indecision, right? You can kind of uh, put uh, the car in neutral, so to speak, and you can just kind of coast for a while and things are comfortable and, and we don't want to, you know, go too overboard and we don't want to stretch ourselves too thin and we can just kind of spin our, our, our wheels for a little bit, and so this morning, my, my goal this morning, if you want to call it that, is I want to briefly go over what is our, our mission and vision as a church? What do we feel God is calling us to? Um, I want to look at Luke chapter 9 as a way to, to just challenge a little bit our tendency to be complacent just as human beings, and then to ask, well, what is our motivation in all of this? What what motivates us to go about pursuing our mission and our vision? Because if, if you've been here a while, you'll hear, hear me say lots, our motivation matters immensely in why we do things. So seven years ago, um, we felt, your, your pastors and elders felt like God had led us to to pursue a new mission and vision as a church. So the church had gone through um, some turmoil. They had had a, a we had had a, a transitional pastor that dealt with a lot of healing and structure and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, we came eight years ago and we kind of took a year to just get to know everybody. One of my mentors said, when you go to a church, don't change anything in the first year. Oh, they'll, oh, they'll hate you. <laughs> so we just took a year to just learn what is this church about? What is this city about? Build relationships. So seven years ago, we, we felt God leading us to, to write down this mission and vision. So the mission, if you want a, a definition of what is the mission of a church, really it's the what. What, do, what are we doing? And Really, every church's mission is the same because Jesus gave us the mission 2,000 years ago. It, it hasn't changed. We, we received our marching orders from Jesus. So we've worded it this way. We exist to glorify God and to make disciples of Jesus. So kind of those two things, those two grids help us to decide what are we doing as a church. One, we want everything we do to bring glory to Jesus, to bring glory to God. We don't want to make much of ourselves. We're not interested in building our own little kingdom. The question we ask is, okay, is this event or this life group or this service or these songs, is it all pointing to Jesus? Does it glorify Him? 
Um, In Matthew 5, Jesus even tells us, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So the, the things that we do are meant to actually give glory to God the Father. Secondly, um, we want to make disciples. The reason we want to is because Jesus tells us to, right? Matthew 28, Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, he says this, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So really, there's nothing new about our mission. This is, this is what Jesus told us to do. We don't, we don't have to be really creative about our mission. We're, we're told, Jesus tells us, go and make disciples. Go share the gospel with lost people. See them come to know Jesus. Then baptize them in obedience to Jesus. Then teach them the Bible. Teach them what Jesus commands. How do you walk with Jesus in obedience? That's what we want to do. That's what every church, every evangelical gospel preaching church, that's their mission. It's all the same. And you you might word it differently, but Jesus told us what the mission is, to go and to make disciples. Now, the vision of a church is the how, right? The mission is the what, what are we doing? And then the vision of a church is, well, how are we going to go about accomplishing the mission? Um, how do we carry out this mission of making disciples? What does that look like for us? And I, I believe that God calls different churches to different visions. Some churches in, you know, uh, the downtown east side might have a very different vision than we do as a church because their context is just different, right? And so their, their, their vision as a church probably has a lot to do with street ministry and taking care of homelessness and because that's just so much their reality down there. And it might be a, a different than a church in Kelowna or whatever or us here, right? God calls different churches to pursue different visions, so here's our vision as a church. We desire to be a multiplying church, willing to do anything for the sake of the gospel and for the advancement of the kingdom of God in Fort St. John and to the ends of the earth. Um, really, if you would boil it down to one word, our vision as a church is to multiply. We want to be a multiplying church. And really, the reason that we felt the Lord leading us to that is because biblically, God is all about multiplication. Um, God is all about multiplication, even in the book of Acts specifically, but really the whole Bible. But God in the book of Acts, what was the church doing? They would go and they would plant churches and then they would raise up leaders and then those churches would send out leaders to plant more churches. And then you have Paul who plants dozens of churches and then he goes and those churches multiply more churches and more believers. And so read Acts and God is all about multiplication. Nowhere in the book of Acts do they plant one church in Jerusalem and say, hey, everyone come come to this church. No, they they go out and they multiply and they plant more and more and more and more churches. And so at North Peace MB, we felt four areas God wanted us to to focus on multiplication. Um, One was in life groups, uh, which we're going to unpack more next week. One was in having multiple services, so making more room and more space, and whether that's Sunday morning, whether that's Saturday night, I mean, we've tried a whole bunch of stuff to have multiple services to give more opportunities for people to come and hear the gospel. 
Um, one was in sending missionaries. So what would it look like for us as a church to raise up new kind of vocational missionaries that we send out then to go and be missionaries and also short-term missions as well. And then lastly, to plant churches. And it's exciting because over seven years, we've had this vision of we want to plant more churches, right? Healthy churches plant churches. Um, And and, uh, they were going to launch this week, but because of construction and things, Creekside is going to be launching on September 25th. So we have this new church that is being birthed, and we're multiplying in Dawson, which is so exciting. So that's what we want to focus on as a church We want to glorify God in everything we do. We want to pursue discipleship and making disciples. And then we constantly want to be thinking, how do we multiply as a church? Do we need another service? Do we need more life groups to train leaders? Do we need more missionaries sent out? Do we, right, we're planting Dawson, but already I'm thinking, where's the next place that we're going to plant a church? And it's like, settle down, right? Let's get Dawson off and running first. But we want to constantly be thinking like that. Which brings us to Luke 9, because I think vision is so exciting as a church because you look at all of these ideas to multiply, but what can often happen is that churches and individuals, we just kind of get sidetracked and we lose focus or we become complacent or we we just become comfortable, right? It's so easy, especially when you go, okay, look, like, We're kind of full, we got money in the bank, we got staff, we got stuff that we can do, and it's really easy then for each one of us, and then collectively as a church to go, we can kind of take it easy for a little bit. So in Luke chapter 9, right near the end of the chapter, it's amazing, what we see is three potential followers of Jesus come and talk to him, and what Jesus almost does, it seems like, is he's trying to persuade them not to follow him. Right? And you'll notice, even through John, Jesus does this lots, right? He'll have massive crowds of people, and then he'll say really difficult, hard things. And then what happens? So many of the crowds just turn away because it's too hard. And, and today, in our day and age, we would go, Jesus is a terrible evangelist, right? You just want to make it as easy as possible for people to come. And Jesus seems to make it as hard as possible to be one of his followers, So here are the three interactions, right? We'll start reading in Luke 9, verse 57. It says this, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So here's the first interaction, right? Um, And the initial excitement looks fantastic, Right? You have someone who comes up to Jesus, and I mean, think about that. If you're a follower of Jesus and your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus comes to you and says, hey, I want to follow Jesus wherever he goes, we would go, that's, that's amazing. That's exciting. And yet, what, how does Jesus respond? Jesus tells this individual, hey, just so you know, I have nowhere to rest my head at night. So following me could result in you losing everything. It could result in your homelessness if you decide to follow me. So I think this first proposition that Jesus gives this potential follower is a choice between comfort or the cross. 
Because what you see as you read all the Gospels, following Jesus actually comes at a cost. Even in in a few verses before our passage in in Luke 9.23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Right, and you, you, like remind yourself that the cross was a symbol of the worst type of death that you could die in the Roman Empire. And so Jesus says, if anyone wants to actually follow me, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be my follower, every day you have to pick up your cross, this instrument of death, you have to die to yourself, and then, and then follow me. So daily, right, that's that's a high bar. Jesus says daily, will you die to yourself? Will you die to your desires and your wants and will you submit to Jesus? I think one of the problems is, is that in North America, we've bought into this idea that Christianity means I say a prayer, I ask Jesus into my heart, and then Jesus' job then is to make my life super easy and super comfortable, right? We just kind of view that like now he's just going to fix all my problems and, and then I'll just kind of smooth sail all the way to to heaven, and what compounds it is that even our, you know, secular world loves comfort. We love comfort in North America. I love comfort. I mean, we like things that make our lives cushy and comfortable, don't we? Um, I don't want discomfort. I don't want pain. I don't want trials. I just want to kind of bubble wrap my life and just make it as as comfortable as, as possible. Even recently, um, we had to get a new vehicle because um, we were in a wreck and ours was totaled and it was kind of exciting. It was like, okay, our van was eight years old and it was getting old and it was like, this is kind of exciting. We can go get a new car and ICBC gave us some money. This is great. We went car shopping and the first one that the guy gave us, they always show you the most expensive one, don't they? I've got a great car for you. Oh, follow me. And then we go and we got in this new car and it's almost brand new and go test drive it. And we drove it. I'm like, this is pretty nice, right? That has seat warmers and seat coolers. Whoo! And a heated steering wheel, like my hands are never going to be cold again. And not just a rear camera, but like the one that is from up top, right? Like you can see everything around your car. So we drove it around and it was like, this is pretty nice. And then we went in and he crunched the numbers and he said, listen, you can have this vehicle today. It's only $350 biweekly. It's only $700 a month. And we're like, yeah, can you show us something that's like a tenth of that, please? But I'll tell you what, man, like the comfortable, oh man, this car would just make me feel so good, right? It would just solve all my problems. And we do that with everything, right? We just want to be comfortable. And then even in our Christian walk, we just go, right, Jesus is going to call me to die to myself? Well, isn't he supposed to just make my life just a little bit better? And I love that Jesus gives this potential disciple a wake-up call. You're going to notice in all three of these examples, we have no idea what happened with these potential disciples. Did they turn away? Did they say, yes, I'll still follow? We have no idea. But it's like Jesus gives this disciple a a wake-up call. He says, if you're going to follow me, it means that you're accepting the cross. You're dying to yourself. And so Christianity is not a path to more comfort and a higher status and greater ease in the world. It just isn't. Our Savior and King, Jesus, was poor, he was humble, he was misunderstood, and he was crucified. And Jesus says, now, follow me. Like, take the path that I took. 
So following Jesus might mean a loss of your reputation. It might mean sacrificing your social status. It might mean losing the North American dream. It might mean giving away money and possessions. It might mean leaving behind economic security and possibly even losing your life. And so Jesus lays that option out to this first disciple. Are you going to choose comfort? Right? I have nowhere to lay my head, Jesus says. Are you going to choose comfort or are you going to choose the cross? Verse 59, here's the second interaction. To another, he said, follow me, right? So Jesus now says to another disciple, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Doesn't that sound almost like really harsh? (laughs) It's like, ouch, Jesus, why would you say that? It seems so insensitive right you have a guy that or a girl we're not told we have a or I guess we are told in this one he said you have a a potential disciple who comes and says Jesus I want to follow you but first let me just go bury my dad and Jesus says let the dead bury their own dead you go and proclaim the kingdom like can you imagine losing a loved one and wanting to have a funeral, and Jesus says, hey, let him bury himself. Follow me. So what is going on? First of all, we have to be clear. Jesus is not saying that having a funeral or paying respects to a dead loved one, he's not saying that's wrong. He's not saying, you know, carte blanche across the board, we should never do that. That's, That's not what he's getting at. However, it seems that this man's following of Jesus was almost conditional on that. I will follow you, Jesus, but... You have to let me do this thing first. And our, the way that we do uh, funerals is different from how the Jewish people did funerals, right? So um, I've seen it when someone dies on Monday, you have a funeral on Wednesday, and it's just kind of done and over, and there's closure, and then it, it, the funeral part of it is done. But in the Jewish culture, the funeral process was a year-long process, So the family would bury um, the loved one and then there were ceremonies and then actually a year later they would go and they would take the bones and then there would be a whole nother ceremony where they were put in a box and all. So it was a year long process. So what this guy is actually saying is, I'll follow you Jesus, just give me one year and I'll take care of all of this other stuff and then I will come and follow you. And Jesus is saying, His kingdom doesn't take second place to anyone or anything. Even more important than honoring the dead is proclaiming the kingdom to those who are dying. So we go, it sounds harsh, and on one hand, it is kind of harsh, but Jesus is saying, my kingdom is of first importance. It takes second place to no one or nothing. And so really, I think the choice, right, you have in the first interaction, it's the comfort or the cross And I think in our second interaction, we see maintenance or mission, right? This potential follower of Jesus is like, I need to just go and maintain some things in my life. I got to take care of some stuff. And Jesus says, no, other people can take care of that. You need to be on mission. You need to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And so all of us have that choice, right? Are we going to just go through maintenance mode and maintain everything in our life or are we going to live on mission? And, and I think so many of us, because I know that I've done this, we go through life and we do our own thing and it's like, yes, I'll follow you, Jesus, 
but, right, and then just insert whatever your excuse is. I'll follow you, Jesus, but man, I want to get married first. I'll follow you, Jesus, but I just want to have kids first. I'll follow you, Jesus, but we just need to become financially stable first, and then I will, right, let me maintain all the things in my life, and then I'll follow you, Jesus. And we can so easily get stuck, and then years go by, and we're just kind of maintaining our lives, and we're actually not living on mission. The gospel is the most pressing need in people's lives. The answer to the questions that our society is asking about hope and purpose and meaning, it lies in the gospel. And people, I believe, even though our society has said there's no truth, truth doesn't matter, I say bogus, people are hungry for the truth. They want it. And they want meaning and they want what is the purpose of my life. And what's amazing is you and I as followers of Jesus, we have the answer. So what it means is that we can't be silent with the gospel and just slip into maintenance mode. Jesus calls us, go and proclaim the kingdom. Now, maintenance mode happens in churches all the time. And it happens especially when you have money in the bank and you have butts in the pews. I should, bottoms in the pews. <laughs> when as a church you can pay the bills, when you've got, you know, eight staff who can just do stuff. We don't have to do stuff. We pay Corlin to do stuff, right? <laughs> and what happens though is like we laugh, but it happens. And then what ha- we settle in and we just kind of get comfortable and we just kind of slip into maintenance mode. And what really happens when that, when that occurs is that churches can very quickly become country clubs. And we just kind of meet once a week for our weekly country club meeting. And then we go home and we go, great service, really enjoyed it. Now I'm not going to think or do anything for the kingdom of God until next Sunday. So Jesus gives that option. Okay, are you going to pursue maintenance or are you actually going to pursue my mission? Last interaction. Uh, Verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but, there it is again, let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So here's another potential disciple, right? He says, I will follow you, but first let me just go quickly and say goodbye to people who are at my house. And Jesus says, if you put your hand to the plow and look back, not fit for the kingdom. And really, I think what you're seeing in this person's mind is indecision. It's like, I'll follow you, Jesus, but, but," right? It's this indecisive mind going, I'll follow you, but first I got to do this. And Jesus, what he wants is an undivided heart. He says, don't even look back. Just be so committed to me that your heart is undivided. And again, if we're honest, you and I can be very indecisive when it comes to following Jesus. And we say things like, well, isn't that risky if we do that, right? If we move to a different city to become missionaries, isn't that risky? What about our kids? What are they going to do? Are you sure it's wise to do that financially? Can we afford to, you know, give some money to a family? Well, but we need money too. And, and we're very indecisive, right? That kind of stuff is for like radical, crazy Christians. It's not for us. 
I remember, I, many of you know, I grew up in, in South America. My parents were missionaries. And I think back, my parents were 31 when they took four children to South America to go and plant churches and share the gospel with people. And they knew nobody. They had a one-and-a-half-year-old, they had a four-year-old, they, have a, they had a seven-year-old, and they had an eight-year-old. And they said, let's pack up our entire lives, let's go uh, to a different part of the world where, one, we don't know the language and we don't know anyone, let's learn the language, let's plant churches, and let's share the gospel. And I know, because we're human, that people said, Rick and Barb, are you crazy? You have a one-and-a-half-year-old? Why, why are you leaving? And my dad was a youth pastor in Ontario. Why are you leaving a good job to fly around the world? And I, we went to Columbia first, and then we were actually evacuated a year later because of guerrilla warfare in the city. And then we went to, to Venezuela, and you know, I was seven, eight years old. When uh, Chavez overthrew the government, if you're old enough to remember when that happened, and I can remember going to the grocery store with my dad, trying to find milk and bread and eggs, and there are tanks in the street and gunshots going off, and people would go, that's too risky for the gospel. Like, you're being, you're being irresponsible. Is it really worth it to put your family at risk for this? Right? Maybe once we've checked some items off our bucket list, then I can give Jesus my undivided attention. But here's the truth. Oftentimes, indecision, right? If we have indecisive minds, indecision just leads to inaction because we spend so much time mulling over, well, should I do this? Is Jesus calling that? Then we just don't do it. I heard one author or one speaker say, delayed obedience often just becomes disobedience. Yeah, I'll obey you, Jesus. Just give me some time and give it enough time and it just becomes disobedience. Jesus says you can't put your hand to the plow and look back. Now, do you know why? Because if you're plowing, right, it's not like we had, they had big combines and GPS on like I said. If you're literally plowing and your horse is going and you're holding the plow, if you continually look back, do you know what's going to happen? <laughs> you're just going to, you're not going to have straight lines. Jesus says you can't Put your hand to the plow, be committed to the mission of Jesus, and consistently look back for something better because you're just going to wander all over the place. So will you choose, I'm going to have an undivided heart, or or will you have an indecisive mind? So here's the thing, we, we hear things like this, and I think honestly, because I feel this way too, you can become very overwhelmed and you feel guilty, and, and maybe you feel a little bit beat up, and you're just kind of like, man, I'm not doing any of this. I feel like I've just, I'm in comfort mode, I'm in maintenance mode, I'm in indecision mode, and, and then you hear what Jesus calls us to, and, and we can all just kind of feel the, the weight of it. And this is why you and I, our motivation in this is so key. What drives us to live like this? What, what motivates us? to pursue the cross over comfort, to pursue mission over maintenance, to pursue right undivided hearts over indecisive minds. What is our motivation for this? Because here's the truth. Guilt is a terrible motivator. Um, I've told this example before, but um, around, you know, birthday times, kids love balloons, right? And so I'm cheap and I very rarely buy helium balloons because I'm like, $3 extra? 
And we just buy balloons and then you blow them up and then they're just all over the floor. But they're not nearly as fun as helium balloons, aren't they? And so what, 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 what we do is we blow them up and then usually in the birthday party, kids are keeping them in the air, right? They're bouncing them in the air. And I remember one year we, we splurged and we got a helium balloon and I think it was close to a year that it just floated in our hallway. For a, I'm not kidding, probably nine months at least, probably closer to a year. And as the year went on, it would just get lower and lower. And then finally, one night, I got up to go down the hallway, and it was like, Bruh! right in my face. I'm like, we're getting rid of this balloon. But here's the difference, right? You, you know what guilt does? Guilt is you trying to keep the balloons in the air. Ah, oh, it just, it doesn't last, Right? It's, it's a terrible motivator because you will constantly, oh, okay, I got to give more, I got to serve more, and I, gotta, I feel bad, and so I'm, I feel guilty, so I'm going to tell my neighbors about Jesus, and I'm, you're constantly trying to hit the balloons in the air, and it just never lasts. It can't. You need a motivation that, that lasts, that produces life change and heart change where you go, it's not hitting the balloons in the air, it's just up there, and I, that's, that's how I want to live my life. Here's our motivation. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says this, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul says, what is it that controls you and I? What is it that compels us? It's, it's the love of Jesus. And that word uh, control in the Greek language is syneo, and it means something that seizes you. It's something that hems you in, right? It actually, it, it means it's something that holds you together lest it fall all to pieces. So it is the love of Christ that holds us, that compels us, that motivates us, that that drives us that Jesus would come and die for us and be raised from the dead, that is motivation that will last. Not, man, I feel really guilty and bad about myself. No, it's the gospel of Christ that will motivate you to say, I am, on, I am undivided in my heart on mission for Jesus because the love of Christ compels me to live like this. So when you and I think of our motivation to pursue the mission and vision that God has given us as a church, it's by no means is it, is it guilt that will drive us. That's why when we get up and say, hey, volunteer for Kids Zone and help out with Breakout, and I'm always so wary because what, what, you know what the worst kind of volunteer is? A guilty volunteer who goes, fine, stop asking, I'll help. Do you know what the best kind of volunteer is? Someone who is controlled by the love of Jesus. And so we don't want guilt to be our motivator this coming year as we pursue our mission and vision of Jesus or that he's given us. It's the love of Christ. Now, very quickly, because we're running out of time, how many of you have heard, I want to give you an example of what this looks like. How many of you have heard the name Adoniram Judson? A couple. I, I hadn't heard of Adoniram Judson until this week listening to a podcast, but I think his life so aptly describes what does it look like for someone to be controlled by the love of Jesus. So Adoniram Judson grew up in a, as a pastor's kid in the early 19th century, in the 1800s. 
And he uh, wound up going through a, a rebellious stage and he wandered away from the faith after high school. But God, we won't get into all the details, you should l- look it up, but God miraculously called him back. And then God gave him a heart for Myanmar, for Burma, in Southeast Asia. And so Judson married his sweetheart Anne and they took a four-month boat ride to Calcutta first. And as they're heading to Burma, uh, his wife Anne gives birth to a stillborn child. So imagine that, right? Jesus calls you back and you're on mission for him and then this tragedy happens. So they arrived in in Burma and Judson's first idea was, well, I need to translate the Bible, right? Because if we're going to tell people about Jesus and the gospel, they need the scriptures. And so what, what would happen is he would translate the Bible and learn the language and then there was zayats on the side of the road because Christianity wasn't allowed in Burma, but Buddhists would preach, and zayats were kind of these, these uh, pyramid-type-looking things, platforms that you would climb up, and they had shade, and then Buddhists would sit on these zayats and just teach Buddhist doctrine. And so Justin, Judson said, I'm going to build one of these for myself. So he built his own zayat, and then he sat on it, and he preached the gospel to the Burmese people. He would often get beat up. Seven months Into them being in Burma, his wife gives birth. Seven months later, their child dies. Um, Adoniram labored for seven years in Burma, and he had 18 converts. I heard one pastor say, like, we close churches for that in North America. Seven years of toil and labor, and 18 people decided to follow Jesus. Um, At that time, Britain started a war with Burma, and at, in, in Burma, anyone who spoke English was immediately sent to prison. They're probably traitors. And so what happened, Adoniram was sent to a death prison. Uh, he spent 17 months in prison. And his wife, Anne, would come and visit and plead for his freedom and bring him blankets and bring him food for 17 months. Every day she would come. And then eventually there was peace talks between Britain and Burma, and you know what happened? They said, we need someone who speaks English in Burma to translate these peace talks. And so Adoniram is sitting, rotting in a jail cell. I speak English. And so he fosters peace talks between the British and the Burmese, and actually a peace treaty is found. And so you go, man, talk about being used by God and God's sovereignty in that. And so Judson is released from prison, six months later, his wife dies. And six months after that, his other child dies. And so it is just him alone. And Judson actually moved to an area in the woods for over a year, and he really battled with depression. He dug his own grave, And he sat by it every day, imagining his death. And on the third anniversary of his wife's death, we actually have this inscription in his journal. He said this, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. So Adoniram wrestled with his faith, but it was actually his faith in Jesus and his love of Jesus that brought him through that valley out to the other side and he finished translating the New Testament 
and he finished translating the Old Testament. He ordained his first Burmese convert to be a pastor, and then eventually he died on a ship uh, at the age of 61, having gone home only once from Burma in 33 years of ministry. Now, here's what's amazing. In 2006, there was a celebration of the anniversary of the printing of the Burmese Bible, and they had this massive celebration, and people spoke about it, and one of the pastors who got up to speak about this Burmese Bible and the Burmese people and the faith that they'd seen, he spoke about Adoniram Judson, and he said, there are six million Christians in Myanmar now, and every single one of them can trace their spiritual heritage to one man who before this week hardly any of us knew about, a man that was so controlled by the love of Jesus that he gave his life for that. And in his lifetime, what did he see? Hardly anything, suffering, pain, disappointment. But 150 years later, there's six million Christians So here is a man whose spiritual legacy lives on in Burma. Why? Was he motivated by guilt? No, he was motivated by the love of Christ. Now, maybe God isn't calling you to to give your life in Burma. That's not your race, right? Maybe God's calling you to a different race. But ask yourself this year, what is God calling me to? I can tell you a few things. God calls all of us to be faithful He calls all of us to pick up our cross and all of us to share the gospel. And so this year, would you commit to a few things? Would you say, I'm going to commit to pray. I'm going to commit to pray for a move of the Spirit of God because you and I, North Peace MB Church, we we can accomplish nothing on our own. We can plan and have great events and, and do lots of great things, but unless the Spirit of God is behind it, it will accomplish nothing. So would you pray this year? I'm going to pray that the Spirit of God would move. And then would you participate? Would you say, and, and again, in whatever the Spirit calls you to, I'm going I'm to share the gospel with my neighbors this year. That is what I'm, I, I am committing myself to do. I want to lead my family more this year in our study of the Bible. I want to pray more this year. Maybe it is leading life groups and Bible studies and kids on a breakout, whatever it is. But would you say, I'm not going to just sit in the pew and be comfortable and maintain and just have indecision in my mind. Just say, I'm going to participate this year. And here's our commitment to you as a church. Um, As your pastor, I will week in and week out, I will remind you of the love of Christ Because that is what controls us. And so that is my commitment to you. Week after week after week, I will put Christ crucified in front of you. And I know all of our staff in every area, we will constantly put the gospel in front of you and that that would be your motivation. I'm going to ask the team to come up. We want to close with just one song um, as we think about um, this coming year. But that has been my prayer for us this, this year, that, that we wouldn't be motivated by guilt. I'm always so weary when I preach about vision and mission because I've seen it so often when we just try and make everyone feel guilty so that you all come and serve, and that's not the motivation. My, 
My hope this year is that the love of Christ would control us, would compel us, would draw us to give our lives. So Jesus, I thank you for the mission that you have given us as your believers, as your followers, to go and make disciples. And God, you hear a a story of Adoniram Judson, and it's so inspiring to see a man who just was controlled by the love of Christ, who gave everything because of the gospel. And so, God, I pray that when we hear stories like that, it wouldn't just make us feel guilty about ourselves, but that it would inspire us to go, man, I want to have that same kind of love and drive and determination because of what Jesus has done for me. So, God, we ask that this coming ministry year in the life of our church that you would do amazing things. We ask for a move of your spirit And we can plan and we can come up with ideas, but unless your spirit moves, we're planning in vain. You are the one that has to build your house. And we ask that you would do that, God. I pray that we would see new believers this year who are captured by the gospel, that we would see more and more baptisms this year, that we would see more uh, husbands and wives leading their kids, that we would see more life groups start, that we would see more and more fruit So Jesus, just do your work in us. You are the one that has to capture our hearts. And so I pray that the love of Christ would compel us to give our lives. And so we just pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.